Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Marrow Men podcast. In the studio tonight, we have Reverend Tim Phillips. How are you, Pastor? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And also Reverend Kent Morlock. Good to see you guys. And I'm Christopher Nicewanger. And tonight we're going to be talking about some issues that are near and dear to the hearts of Christians everywhere. First, we'll be talking about the issue of justification. Now, I know that's a big word, but, you know, we all have to learn it. It's from the Bible itself. It's not like we're making it up. And there are a lot of controversies that happen even today having to do with the doctrine of justification. Entire denominations are split or separate from each other, or even join each other, just based on what they believe about this fundamental Christian doctrine. So to start out, I'll just read a little of one of the uh, catechisms on justification. Justification is a God, act, an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. So maybe we can just start out by uh, having you gentlemen explain to us in layman's language, what is the doctrine of justification? Well, we hear from history that Martin Luther thought that justification was the doctrine on which the church stood or fell, and we see it as a core component in the word, the gospel. What does the gospel actually do for us, and what is God doing for us in the gospel? And when we talk about a person being declared righteous before God by his grace, by his work, by his intention, and that nothing resided within us that made us right before him, then we're talking about a real powerful and then controversial subject on how we stand right before God. And, and we connect that to this term justification. Well, Paul's using a courtroom term there, courtroom language. You already mentioned our right standing before God. Um, later on, in, or in the book of Romans, Paul uses sort of a contrast between justification and condemnation, sort of the opposite uh, anonyms of meaning there. Um, so, in a sense, you could say, in the standing before God in the courtroom of judgment, because of what Jesus Christ did, and only because of what Jesus Christ did, instead of God rightly pronouncing us as guilty in his sight, we have a not guilty standing before hmm. him, hmm. only because of Jesus Christ. And at that last part of what you read in the, in the larger catechism question there, received by faith alone, we're putting all of our trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done in his perfect obedience, his keeping of the law in our stead. Now, of course, with this, you know, it's kind of an obvious question, but why is this important? You know, for most Christians, getting into this level of the theology is a little uncomfortable and seems needless. Can't I just love Jesus? You know, I already believe the Bible. I might not know what's in it, but I pretty much believe it. <laughs> and, uh, so why is understanding this doctrine so important? Well, I think it's not a, a doctrine that pops out of nowhere. I mean, if you're concerned about what the Bible teaches and what it's trying to instruct us to believe, you're going to run into concepts that are related to God's righteousness, to his holiness, to his very character. You have in the action of God creating humanity, someone who bears his image and is a reflection of his very character. And then 
and then there's a fall. There's a, a shattering of that image. And so something's lost. The man has lost his righteousness. And how does he come back into union with God? And so that gets played out through this drama of redemption. That The term righteousness is rife through the Old Testament. And justification is built on this notion of being right before God. Pastor Phillips? Well, part of the problem and, and thinking of an of a issue that would affect many uh, people who may consider themselves to be Christians, but maybe be under a false assumption that mm. they are mm. right before God, uh, many will put their trust, this is one of the issues of the Reformation, will put their trust in some act that they've done themselves. Be it, um, I have my name on a church roll somewhere. Mm. I attend church most of the time. I do this, I do that. And they think because they have these good works that that somehow merits uh, their salvation before God. That gives them a right status before God. They may compare themselves to people in the world around them. Well, I'm much better than that person Mm. over there. And it's based upon what they've done. And uh, it's, of course, absent from Christ. Um, Mm. If that were the case, then then Christ would have died needlessly. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2. Uh, Mm. If it it comes, if if our righteousness can be merited through something that we've done, then why did Jesus have to come and live and die an atoning death upon the cross? Sure, sure. Um, And we would describe his life as the righteous one. He fulfilled all of God's expectations according to his law. He loved God's covenants. He loved God's uh, character and and loved Israel. I mean, he was the completely righteous one who lived for a people that God would elect to himself. So our justification is deeply connected to who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. Now, Pastor Morlock, uh, a minute ago, you mentioned Martin Luther and his his famous statement that justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Could you explain a little about why Martin Luther, of all people, is relevant to this and what that statement meant at that time? Well, then we sort of enter into a little bit of a history yeah, lesson. it's kind of history, but it's good history. Because it's excellent history. We have um, a devout monk who understands himself to be charged to know the scriptures, to teach the scriptures, and while reading them, finding that they're constantly accusing him of his sin and where he is deficient in his devotion to God. And he's realizing that God's standard for salvation is well beyond anything that he could do in his thought, word, or deeds. And he was working with a system, which we would call the Roman Catholic Church at this time, and uh, who had come up with Uh, different ideas on how one obtained this righteousness. And so the sacramental system of the church, the introduction of indulgences, these all seem to be shortcuts or bypasses to the real issues that were on hand. Uh, People were trying to buy off God by their deeds or by their money. And Martin Luther said, "This this is not the type of fruit that's born out of our life that when we're confronted by God, we try to buy him off with our, with our doings. Um, so he, he saw in the scriptures that God, that there was a righteousness that came by faith. And it wasn't something that was located in his striving and doing. It was a gift of God. And so this became, through his 
experienced with the Roman Catholic Church, a paramount uh, doctrine for him to champion. Now, Pastor Phillips, there, there's this issue of the marrow men, and some people might not uh, remember who those guys are, Ebenezer Erskine and others that uh, also grappled with this same issue at a different time in history, not in the 1500s, but in the 1700s. Maybe you could tell us a little about the background of that and why the justification controversy of that time is still relevant to us today. Well, it's a little bit of a different historical example or period, but um, basically what had happened in the Church of Scotland at that time is it had entered into sort of a hyper what we would call hyper-Calvinistic type of preaching. Now, that may be an exaggeration because like with a lot of labels, not everyone holds to something in the same stringent ways, but there was a concern among some that the uh, the gospel was not rightly being preached. Now, that name, Merriman, comes from a book that was written anonymously, but we think was written by a man named Edward Fisher, uh, called The Mirror of Modern Divinity. And it was published in the uh, mid-1600s, uh, roughly the time uh, maybe of the of the English Civil War, if I remember correctly. But anyway, that book largely fell out of print. And one of the mirror men, Thomas Boston, uh, a member of his congregation, he was making a pastoral visit. And this is why it's always good for pastors to make pastoral visits. <laughs> but um, a member of his congregation who had been old enough to have fought in the English Civil War, so he had to be a very old man at that time, gave him a copy of the book because Boston himself was struggling with assurance oh. of salvation. And that book really made a difference, and it pointed out some of these issues that we're talking about now. But because of that, there was this desire among the mirror men to faithfully preach the gospel, the Mm. free offer of the gospel, that sinners need to hear the good news of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and that our salvation is, of course, not based upon any merit that we've done, but upon Christ and his merit, the the idea that um, we, we have a double problem when it comes to wow. our own sin. Um, we, of course, we, we've done the bad stuff, mm-hmm. um, and Christ's atoning death washes clean our sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are washed, uh, we are whiter than snow. Uh, Psalm 51, that's what David asked to be cleansed in such a way. But we haven't done the good stuff. We've fallen far short of what God requires of us. Sure. All the positive things we should have done. How many of you, dear listeners, how many of you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Wow. And how many of you have loved your neighbor as yourself? You simply have not. Mm-hmm. And Jesus calls this the, the, the greatest commandment and the second mm-hmm. like unto it. And we haven't even done that. But Jesus has. And he has done that in our place, at our standing. So we have the assurance that um, he covers us with that perfect righteousness, which we did not have ourselves. And people need to hear this. And that gets lost. If, you've, if, if you're in a culture, it doesn't have to be in, in the 1700s. It can be in 21st century sure. America. If you're in a culture that tells you that you're okay you can have your best life now. Um, <laughs> we, do, we are in a culture like that. <laughs> are we really? You think someone would write a book about this or something. But if we think that we've got it made and God is blessing us because mm-hmm. of all the abundances we have and all these kinds of things, we're 
and we're living in, in idolatry because we think mm. we're right in of ourselves. We're no better than than the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament and, sure. and the, the idolatry that they were falling into. And God mm. judged them very harshly for that. Sure. And uh, we want to. Now, who are some of the major historical figures involved in that? In, in the in the, the Merrill controversy. controversy. Well, I mentioned Thomas Boston. Uh, you would later have, and and the Merrill controversy is what led to a lot of this. But there were other issues as well in the Church of Scotland, and basically you had a group of ministers who were later disciplined, uh, and they were told not to. I think that the Merrill is a, still a forbidden book in mm-hmm. the Church of Scotland, but they were um, they were disciplined for this. Um, and they wound up forming at what they called an associate presbytery because they did not want to be schismatic. Uh, Ebenezer Erskine, Ralph Erskine, um, among some others, um, his uh, uh, the name James Fisher, that was Ebenezer Erskine's son-in-law, was one of the Merrow men. These men, they wanted to be faithfully. This led to the Succession Church in Scotland, oh. and that's our uh, the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That is our major. Um, Scottish uh, predecessors would be that succession church as it came to this country. So, Pastor Morlock, some of that led to the formation of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, of which you were an ordained minister. Uh, What's the historical background of that church? Why are you part of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church and not, for example, the PCUSA or the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America? Uh, God foreordained it. (laughs) <laughs> before the beginning, uh, right. that's actually true. Yeah. But uh, well, I mean, answer, you want to hear my testimony? I, um, you know, the Presbyterians were having some difficulties in England, Scotland. They were coming into conflict with national churches and churches run by monarchies, and there was a discussion over whom should be the leaders of our churches and how they should be ordered and what type of doctrines would be permitted to be preached. So a lot of them came to the United States. And um, there's a really rich history of a number of people who came to the colonies. And when a number of these Presbyterians got to these shores, they recognized that they weren't fighting the same cultural uh, wars that were happening in the old country. And so a a lot of new associations began to develop among people that weren't necessarily in the same presbytery. This is kind of Presbyterian uh, language. But while they were here, they decided, hey, let's let's, um, form a union together so that we can be more effective in ministry. So you'd mention I'm I'm a minister of the ARP. Coincidentally, both of you are too. And uh, we just happen to have the longest denominational name possible because two (laughs) groups came together out of a a desire for the gospel and unity. So we became the associate and the reformed Presbyterian church, which is two groups uniting here that were separate in the old country. Yeah. You know, uh, my journey's kind of been a long one. The first Presbyterian church I went to in my very early twenties was a Presbyterian church of the United States of America which is considered to be a very liberal church. I didn't know that when I went there. The one I went to was very conservative, right? They believed the Bible, most of them. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, then a lot of time in the OBC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. 
But I find that especially on like the west coast of the United States, very few people have heard of the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. And uh, of course, you know, the history of it has a lot to do with trying to defend historic orthodoxy through time. So that's important. So there have been church splits and stuff like that. But uh, Pastor, do you do you know some of the the history of the doctrinal changes of the ARP through time? Could you comment on that? Well, part of the ARP's history, unfortunately, I think, it, it, that had been good at one time, but it always kind of saw itself as a little brother to the mainline Presbyterian Church. And so some of the things that particularly the Southern Presbyterian Church would do, and up into maybe the last century, most of those would have been perfectly orthodox sorts of things to do. They tended to copy those. So if the Orthodox Presbyterian Church allowed musical instruments, well, the ARPs would, uh, I'm sorry, if the Southern Presbyterian Church did that, then the Mm -hmm. ARPs did that just a few years later. Sure. Uh, Unfortunately, what happened in the 20th century is there began to to be some liberal tendencies that began to shift in in the first, the Northern Presbyterian Church, then the Southern. The Southern was always about 40 or 50 years behind. Sure. Um, One of those things, just to give you an example, one of those things was uh, in... 1903, the Northern Presbyterian Church added two chapters to the right. uh, to the Confession of Faith, and uh, one was on the Holy Spirit and one was on missions and the gospel, mm-hmm. and um, they uh, uh, sought really to undermine the Calvinism of, of the mm-hmm. of the of the documents, and they, they wanted to reunite with the Cumberland Presbyterians who were. Armenian Presbyterians, for lack of a better term, and some did unite with that. Well, later on, the Southern Presbyterian Church adopted those two chapters, and about 10 years after that, the ARP adopted those two chapters. Mm. Now, in the great providence and mercy of God, we have now removed those two chapters. We've done that in the last few years, but um, that just gives you sort of a shift, and what one of the wonderful things about the ARP Church is that God, again, in his mercy and his providence held back held us back from the precipice uh, sure. there was a time in which we could have slid full scale into liberalism but we had a lot of good godly men uh, who preceded us in the late 1970s who took a stand against uh, the, the liberals, they took, basically it took a stand on the authority and the inerrancy of scripture to do that and that pulled us back Sure. From there and led us into a different thing. So now the ARP, unlike a lot of denominations, sadly, are in a trajectory, it seems, towards liberalism. The ARP has been swinging completely the opposite direction sure. in the last probably 20 years or so, I would say. So, Pastor Morlock, is it true that uh, the conservative Presbyterian denominations, some people would call them the associates with NAPARC, although not necessarily all of them, all they are all hold to this same historic doctrine of justification even through time over the last 500 years? Or? Yeah, I would say that's what we have a lot of our union over is the understanding of some core documents that we um, adhere to. So if you're going to find a Presbyterian denomination, you're going to quickly find a document called the Westminster Confession. And this was uh, written in the 1640s in England when they were seeking to have a unified doctrine of belief in that country. Um, And so you started the program off just reading a section from the larger catechism of that document, 
which is something upon which we all agree as ministers. We say this is what we believe, this is what we affirm, and this is what we're going to preach. This summary of the scriptures, and that's what gets us, uh, uh, keeps us united as a group of people. When you start uh, teaching different views, and especially different views of justification, then you start sporting for a little bit of a debate and perhaps some kind of disunity because this is such a central gospel, a gospel message that we need to affirm and hold. But this is found in the Westminster Confession. It's kind of interesting. You could ask any of your common day Christian, what is your confession? <laughs> and uh, I asked this the other day of uh, someone at a hospital and they said, are you Roman Catholic? And I said, no, no, I, I'm not asking for you to confess your sins to me right now. I, I just use that as a word to say, what is, how do you summarize what you believe? How, what could you point me to? Can, do, you can't just point me to the Bible because the Bible has so many things to say. Can you, can you distill and summarize what you believe? And that's what our confession is. And our confession is pretty clear on what justification is, what adoption is, what sanctification is. And uh, that's something that we, we uh, hold as a very important guideline to how we interpret the scriptures. It's not the scriptures for us. It doesn't hold the authority of the scriptures for us, but it's a wonderful summary of what the scriptures teach. Yes. Yeah, it would be hard if every time somebody asked us a theological question, we just handed them the Bible and said, here, read this entire book. Yeah. Well, and, if I may use a, I used to be a mathematics teacher, and so in math, I taught geometry for, for 11 years, and uh, in geometry, you learn the names of certain theorems and postulates mm. and things like this, so you don't go around telling people uh, the sum of the squares of the leg, the sum of the squares of the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse, because that, <laughs> first of all, nobody's going to listen to you, and it gets too wordy, but you say, oh, the Pythagorean theorem and that's shorthand. It's a, a, a summary name for it. Well, we're talking about a summary document. Nice. And we're saying this is something that unites all of us. We all believe this, sure. uh, the things that are said here. Justification is a relatively simple thing. Whenever, mm-hmm. whenever I, I came into the Presbytery, uh, I just graduated from seminary in 2004. And in 2005, I received a call to one of the churches in our Presbytery. So we have a committee that examines ministers or ministerial candidates that comes in. And so I met with them, and if and Joey Donahue could not be with us, but he was in that room whenever it took wow. place. And the uh, the chairman asked me, the first question they asked was my uh, how I became a Christian, my conversion. And then they asked me my, about my sense of call, pretty standard questions. The very next question they asked me, because they had no idea who I was, could you give us a definition of justification? There you go. Uh, that was the that was a controversial topic at the time, and so I basically said, "Can I quote the Shorter Catechism?" They said, "Sure," and so I did, and we talked about that. But that completely put them all at ease because Great. it was something that was uniting us together um, at that particular time. Yeah, and you talk about a certain kind of unity. Even that document, the Westminster Confession, was adopted by Baptists. You know, today you say Presbyterian and you say Baptist, you think you're, you know, you're going for a cage fight. But the early press, uh, excuse me, the early Baptists basically took almost everything that was written in the Westminster Confession and adopted it, and then made a few tweaks that were related to some of their convictions that were different than ours. Well, you would have to say that virtually every 
Protestant church, Protestant denomination held to the same definition that you said. Sure, right. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, Roman Catholics, perhaps some extreme sects that mm-hmm. we would say were heterodox or heretical may not have done that. But every Protestant denomination that came out of the Reformation period, by and large, held to the same definition. Now, there was an interesting issue that happened a few years ago when some uh, famous Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, oh, yeah. Presbyterians came together and uh, put together a doctrine a uh, document called uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants together. Evangelicals and Catholics Evangelicals and Catholics together. That became very controversial yeah. because while they agreed that they could agree on the fact that uh, uh, we are justified by faith, uh, it didn't have the word alone on it. <laughs> and that became very controversial in our circles because it's not that Catholics and other people don't believe you're That's justified right. by faith. That's right. But they certainly don't believe you're justified by faith alone. There's a place in the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, uh, point two, that says, Faith thus receiving and resting mm-hmm. on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So why is it important that Protestants are always sticking that alone on there? In regard to justification, <laughs> well, that, you know, we always talk about the five solos of the Reformation, sure. and, and that—that's what distinguishes it. Once again, you point—you pointed it out. It's not that the Protestants were saying, you know, we're justified by faith, and the Roman Catholics were saying, oh no, no, we're not justified by faith. Mm-hmm. Faith alone, faith being that instrument that is what unites us to Christ. That is, it's not adding our works to what Christ sure. has done, but yeah. it is only Christ and his perfect righteousness that is our right standing before God. And I guess this is sort of maybe where you were trying to take us. Brings us back to Martin Luther, who when he um, translated the scriptures into the German language, uh, when he got to the book of Romans, sort of with a little degree of liberty, wrote the word, we're justified by faith, and he entered the word alone. may not be there in the in the in the Greek, but he wanted to emphasize, and I think it's it is the emphasis of the scripture in Toto to say that God is the one who produces faith in us, and that faith, as was mentioned, is an instrument to link us to the merits of Christ. And this is the way that we are regenerate. It's God's working um, outside of who we are and what we've done. So it is alone his work. Yeah, it seems like it seems hard even today for Protestants to bite the bullet and say alone. Though mm. I mean, uh, I remember uh, a lot of controversies in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church because there were several ministers at the time, even that taught at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, that their sticking point was that uh, we should say justified by faith, but we shouldn't necessarily say alone, aren't we also justified by other instrumental causes? Like, what if we were just to say the instrumental cause of justification is faith, but good works are also an instrumental cause of justification? Would that be wrong? I would say that there's a, a there's a horse <laughs> and there's a cart, and you've got to get them in the right place. Well, what you said is very important because a lot of times there are lots of misunderstandings about justification, which is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. 
if you walk into your average church, for example, and we need to maybe talk about this later on, if you mm-hmm. say, what does the word imputed mean, which right. is in that question, you're going to get blank stares. Mm-hmm. And, and probably we haven't done as good of a job as pastors as, as, as teaching our people what these words mean. Um, but you can point that out, and, and people need to understand that. The fact that you pointed out that it's never a bare alone type of faith. It's sure. always going to be accomp- accomp- accompanied by uh, fruit, spiritual fruit, right. uh, is necessary to that as well. Um, uh, I was reading earlier uh, you know, today, this is how, I mean, this is the way in which you know, Paul and James are reconciled here. You know, that, yeah. that they're not talking about the same well, thing. Why don't you also mention that then? Because some people might not know about the controversy surrounding whether Paul and James are reconciled. Well, <laughs> well when you get to uh, James 2, he seems at first to be saying that we're not uh, uh, justified by works alone. Sure. And what James is saying there, he's speaking about the person who makes a, the person who says, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but it's just a mere profession of faith. There's nothing to accompany that. Um, And he's saying that kind of faith is not really true faith. That kind of faith does not save you. It's always going to be accompanied by something. And... um, uh, you know, Paul is, is speaking from the other perspective because he's addressing false teachers who would come in, false brethren, he calls them, who had come in and tried to add things to the to the law, to to the uh, uh, the simplicity of the gospel. Sure. Things like you have to adhere to uh, circumcision was the big thing, right? But you had to be circumcised first. But also, they were he was they were advocating holding to the uh, Jewish ceremonial calendar and and things like this as so well. Almost that. Christians had to become Jews to be saved, yes. which would have been yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, Paul says something. We said that it doesn't it doesn't happen um, uh, doesn't have the word alone in there. But if you look in Galatians two, um, and this is the first time that Paul uses the word justified in the book of Galatians in, in chapter two. Um, he says, uh, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right. Three times he uses the word justified there, and he keeps pointing back again and again to faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that this takes place. So even though he doesn't use the sola language per se, he says very specifically that no one will be justified through the works of the law. So really there's a focus on that idea of faith alone it doesn't mean faith without milk and cookies or faith. <laughs> there really is something they're powerfully trying to exclude from being part or being an instrument of justification. And what is what is that? We're we're always trying to insert something that we can point to. And the word assurance was brought up earlier, which is, has to be connected to this discussion. Is your assurance based on something you did? Did you walk the aisle? Did you raise your hand? Did you say that prayer? Were you sincere enough in that prayer? Did you really confess all your sins? And the introspection of someone who's trying to 
find themselves right before God is, is just a terrible black hole. You'll never get out of it. Sure. You have to look to Christ. And I, I like the, the sermon that Paul preaches in Acts 13, who, who talks about how you are freed from everything that, that, that Israel could not accomplish in their works. You are justified apart from all the works that Moses wrote. I mean, there's, what was that, 616 laws? That uh, the Jewish people are to maintain it with purity and devotion. And Paul says, you know, you're free from that now. Uh, Jesus Christ has fulfilled that for you. And you can stand justified before him. Declared righteous in God's sight so that, as Romans 8 says, there is no longer, there is no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus because you're in Christ. Um, of course, the, what would the response of the person who is declared righteous before, before God, what would it be? It would be a great heart of thankfulness and, and gratitude, and there would be some sort of change of heart and motivation to really understand what glorifies God and how we live our lives. Sure. So, Pastor Phillips, in, in uh, faith alone, what's the real focus on it being alone from? <laughs> from our own works. From uh, our from, own from, good works. Well, any merit, any goodness in us. God mm-hmm. chose me because I was better than that person. I attended church more frequently. I read my Bible more. I prayed more. Anything along those lines. We Protestants have our have our uh, sacramental system, too, or can have our sacramental <laughs> wow. system. Now, that, many man. people will come up to me, and they will just get right to the point and say, how dare you say that people don't have to have good works or that they don't have to live a righteous life to be saved, that it's all by faith. You're just saying people can live however they want. They can do whatever they want, no matter what evil they do. They're saved if they have faith. Well, right? wouldn't, wouldn't that be their reading then of Romans chapter 6 where Paul says, you know, well, if, you know, if grace covers everything, I can do whatever I want. And uh, But isn't that what that doctrine saying? Well, that's exactly what Martin Luther would respond. Well, what <laughs> is it that you want to do if you have really been saved? What does a believer in Jesus Christ want? Well, they want to honor him and they recognize that their life has been buried in him. And that a new person has been raised up that longs to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So justification by faith alone does not imply the acceptability of a lascivious or sinful life then, right, Pastor? May it never be. May it never be. That's what Paul's answer is to that. May it never be, or God forbid in the old King James. That is is, is actually a twisting of the gospel. That's Mm -hmm. a twisting of the doctrine. Uh, and I'm sure there have been those in the history of the church who have probably argued for that, and we would by and large call them antinomians. Antinomians. What does that word mean? Against the law. Oh. There are those who, who, and even in our day, it's become more extreme in our day, sure. but you have people who will say that um, I can live however I want to live mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I, I asked Jesus in my heart many years ago. And that's the misunderstanding. <laughs> that's really what James, that's the kind of thing James is talking about. And he, gives sure. us, he gives us two examples there of Abraham and of Rahab the harlot. And in both cases, he talks about how they demonstrated their justification, their 
their belief in the in in God and 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 this sort of saving faith. They did this. It was proven or shown through their actions, and that's going to be true of the Christian. We're not justified the sense that these are actions that merit our salvation before God. But there's going to be some proof in your life. There's going to be some spiritual fruit that comes from this. Well, let me let me add something here. When you read your scriptures, Christian, and you will find that Paul and the apostles, especially in the New Testament, but really use an Old Testament motif, that in justification, you have everything. I mean, you stand before God right. And this is a, the most powerful doctrine of the scriptures, I would say. And yet you will find uh, Paul cautioning the church, saying, and throwing even a conditional um, language connected to this. If this is true, if this is true uh, for you, then you will do this. So my caution to you as you read the scriptures is to recognize that Paul and the scriptures affirm this right standing that we have before God, but understanding it and having it are two different things. And you can be someone who comes to church and be told you're justified, you're justified when you're probably not, if you're not believing rightly in Christ. And then there are some warning passages for believers, mm -hmm. the warning passages for churches, but then Paul will come back, the apostles will come back and say, but I am assured of better things for you. For those who truly have faith in Christ, uh, you can have confidence in this. You can have assurance. So what I'm trying to get at, this is a powerful thing that God, by his grace, is giving to a people, but it's not to be uh, trivialized. It is a life-changing reality, and so those who are truly justified demonstrate a new way of living and a certainly a grateful, thankful heart, and they tend to be really kinder to one another, recognizing that God has been doing the work and saving. So repentance is still an expression of the Christian life then? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even in this faith alone camp. <laughs> it's right there, the confession you read from earlier. It uh, did. We, we read it, but you know, I mean, that's such a common thing to bring up. People are afraid of something. Yeah. They're afraid that what you're saying is that if God is not going to measure me and justify me and count all of my sins and good works, then really, you know, we're, we're allowing something that shouldn't be allowed. But it's, it's not actually true. There's a place in the uh, Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, and there, there are many different interpretations of that passage these days. One of the most uh, interesting newer interpretations would be of uh, some people like N.T. Wright who say that it's not really talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's more talking about the fact that God is righteous in himself when he does it. What do you gentlemen mm. think about that? Mm. That God's just being righteous. He's not giving righteousness. Which is why Wright would argue, really, 
Every place it's talking about justification, it's talking about a justification on the basis of obedience. And even even defined faith as obedience. Faith is just mm. doing right things, which we would call good works. So it's interesting that in the liberal churches today, to a large degree, faith or believing the right things is not necessary, but faith defined as doing the right things is, which would seem that our justification is by good works alone apart from faith. Now, that's a tricky thing. It's very tricky. Well, yeah, right? that's sort of the distinction between faith being a gift of God and, and f- there's this faith being a virtue. Mm-hmm. And what what is being championed in our preaching are we telling people to be more faithful? Yeah, well, it brings honor and glory to God. But is it the desire of your heart to be faithful? Are you fighting it? Every, are, are you struggling to be a virtuous person? I think sometimes our preaching can go astray on, on helping people understand some of those distinctions. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I, I think Paul answers that question in Romans 4. Um, uh, beginning of verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but mm. not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, which is what you were saying, Pastor, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, wow. his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, uh, historical footnote there, uh, Joseph Smith uh, set out after beginning this religion which became called Mormonism and so forth. He, he, he Latter-day Saints, that's the official. The Latter-day word. Saints. He, he, mm-hmm. made, he went through the Bible and made some corrections where he thought there were mistakes in the Bible. And the verse I just read was one of those mistakes because he inserted wow. the word not. Wow. God does not justify the ungodly because it seems so radical thing, but that's exactly what Paul says. Do people have just a general inclination rooted in their fallen humanity to try to justify themselves on the basis of their own goodness or good works rather than rely on the righteousness of Christ? Yes. (laughs) Every time I sin. (laughs) <laughs> I can justify that. I know why I did that. I'm, I had a right to do that. I'm better than that person down the street yeah. from me. Uh, and God really knows my heart and how sincere I am. What's so offensive about resting on the alien mm. righteousness of Christ? Because we don't depend upon ourselves. Uh-huh. And one of the things that our culture teaches us, rugged indip- uh, individualism, our independence, um, those sorts of things, you know, be your own type of person and, and, you know, get what you can get out of this life. And it just completely rails against that. I was telling you guys earlier that uh, when I first came to my current call in Brighton, I preached to the book of Philippians. Sure. And after I preached to the book of Philippians, I said, I now know the secret of the Christian life. Now, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the language Paul uses in chapter 4. Sure. Uh, I, I've learned this great secret. Well, of course, I, I'm being facetious when I say that. Sure. But basically, two of the things that Paul tells us there is be humble in chapter 2 wow. and be content mm-hmm. in chapter 4. Be humble and be content. And if mm-hmm. you were to, by the by, the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, put those into your in practice in your life, that will go a long way to you having a uh, a a God honoring Christian life. And those are two of the things that, if you look at our current culture, 
it speaks exactly against mm. that. Humility right. and contentment. So I could say humble because I didn't do it and content because Christ has given me everything. When we yes. read Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 20, it says very explicitly, by the works of the law, no human being mm -hmm. will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, there, you know, might he just be talking about the old covenant Jewish law, like circumcision and such? Or is he talking about things that we kind of think of as still sins, like, you know, lust and murder and adultery and, and all of those? Because it's very common for somebody to dismiss the verse by saying, he's just talking about Old Testament relics. He's not talking about the moral law of God, though. Well, I'm glad you used the word relics, because this kind of leads me to what I wanted to say about that. Sure. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, um, we have, um, we both have categories for justification. Mm -hmm. So w when does their justification happen? It, well, when you're baptized, you're justified, you're completely righteous at that point. But what happens to you? You begin to sin and you begin to fall from that lofty place. Uh, so you don't have any security in your life. You had something that was given to you, but now it's taken away because of your sinfulness. And the way that you would get your justification back in the Roman Catholic system is that after you die, you have to purge yourself from all of the sins that are on your soul. Anything that resides there, you have to go to purgatory so you can again obtain that level of justification because no one's getting into heaven if they're not 100% righteous. So I recognize their invention of such a place because they, they got it. You can't be standing before God with any sin tainting your soul. And so they invented that to be their form of justification where, as Tim, as you started off right off saying excellently, this is a forensic declaration. God has declared you righteous now. Go ahead. Now, I must correct you on something, okay. which you earned greatly. Oh. That is, you were speaking of traditional Roman Catholicism. Oh. American Catholicism differs greatly from <laughs> that. Now, I'm only saying that. I'm saying that in jest, of course. Sure. But I, I've seen uh, American Roman Catholics who have said things in the sense that they will go straight to heaven when they die, which would, yes... Yes. Yeah, you see my face I, I of used, shock. I, I used to minister in a city which was heavily Roman Catholic, and so I've run across this sort of thing. I could tell you a funny story, but we may not have time for the podcast, <laughs> so I'll, I'll dispense with that. But this idea that, um, which is the American ideal. Now, somebody had to explain to me years ago what happened here, and because I didn't get it. And somebody explained it to me. Why, why does American Roman Catholicism look different than, say, Mexican Roman Catholicism with its cult of the dead type stuff hmm. uh, brought into it? Or Caribbean Roman Catholicism with mixtures of you know voodoo and what have you with that? Well, it's because Roman Catholicism, when it spread to different places, tended to absorb and syncretize with the culture around sure. it. That is the American culture. Yeah. That I, I deserve heaven and, and, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So so you will find American, maybe not all of them. I mean, you, you have people that are old school Roman Catholics, but you will find Roman Catholics, American Roman Catholics, who think they're going to go straight to heaven when they die. Mm -hmm. And uh, traditional Roman Catholicism would have told you only the super saints got to do that. Yeah, right? well, only, based on sure. what? 
based on what you get to go straight and not have and get to avoid purgatory. I guess because good people go to heaven when they die. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm spec- completely speculating when I say that. But that isn't that okay. That, well, and I'm picking on Roman Catholics, but isn't that what a lot of Protestants believe as well? I'm a good person, therefore I get to go to heaven when I die. I would sadly say a lot of people do think that way, and and they find their merit in just their person of who they are. They're good people. They make mistakes. And there's the crux of the matter, no pun intended. There's the crux of the matter, because any time we are having a discussion like this, and the attention is being drawn to anything other than our Lord Jesus Christ, we have strayed away from the path. Mm-hmm. Sure. And people will talk about, uh, when you talk to someone who's in a cult, who's in a false mm-hmm. religion, and I always tell people, I say, if you start talking about, if you're talking to a, uh, a Jehovah's Witness and you're debating about whether the cross looked like a T or whether it was a snake yeah, sure. in the ground, you've lost the argument. You're on a rabbit trail that you will never get back off of. It must always center on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for our salvation. And the same thing here. If we're talking about justification Hmm. and our conversation is not drawn to the perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've strayed. It's all a waste at that point. Yes, it is. There is another great verse that you referred to earlier, uh, Pastor Phillips, in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8. For by grace you have been saved Mm -hmm. through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And that's another place where it just hammers home directly from Scripture, uh, you know, according to the Apostle Paul, who is a pretty good theologian himself. Yes. Those are my life verses. Oh, you, you, you yeah. Have, you, have those, sure. you, you have those, like, these verses of Scripture stand out. Yeah. Those are really the, the two verses that led me to the Lord Jesus Christ, and not to trust in myself. And it was through a um, Christianity Today magazine. Why don't you tell the story? Oh, uh, well, I I grew up in the church, Mm -hmm. and um, it was a, I won't tell you the denomination, but but, uh, it had a dust-up. And I was about 10 years old, and my parents got mad, and they stopped coming to church. And so through my whole teenage years, I never went to church. But I had a little bit of, I guess, some sort of seed planted in there somewhere along the way. But as Pastor Kent was saying earlier, I had this sense, or alluded to earlier, I had this sense of dread, particularly Mm -hmm. in my latter teenage years, because I was doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, even when I got into college, I... um, uh, the first couple of years of college, and I started hearing about other religion and other religious faiths, it sort of awakened this, and I had this sense of dread over me. That I knew I was not right with God, but mm. I, there's not anything I can do about it, and you're going to think I'm joking about no. this. I even looked into the Amish religion of the sure. time, yeah. because it seemed, it seemed to be maybe a, a structured way of, of, of pleasing God or something And the clothes like that. are awesome. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, um, I, uh, eventually, through God's providence, I was uh, placed in a, a room in college with two Christian roommates who led me oh, to the Lord, wow. to make a long story yeah. short. Too late, as we always say. It's not too late. But um, I still didn't quite have a, an, uh, an understanding. Of, that was in the fall of 1988. Mm-hmm. And I still did not have a, quite an understanding of 
faith alone at that point, right. if you will. So I went home over the Christmas break, and uh, my parents had, had gotten me an appointment at the dentist. And so I would go to this dentist office, and he's a Christian, and he has, uh, and you'll see this a lot of Christian, a lot of dentists are Christians apparently, <laughs> because you'll see them have uh, uh, religious magazines and Bibles and things like that in their offices. And um, God bless dentists, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, They're Orthodox. Yes, yes. <laughs> Orthodox. Yes. Right. Anyway, um, I was flipping through while I'm waiting for my appointment. Flipping through this Christianity Today magazine, and the guy's talking in, in an article about going out and witnessing, sharing the gospel with mm-hmm. others. And he says one of the tactics he often does is he draws three circles. The first circle he puts faith, the second circle he puts works, and the third circle he puts faith plus works. And he says, he asks people, he says, which of those is a correct ball of salvation? Which are you saved by? And he says mm-hmm. almost everyone points to faith plus works, mm-hmm. which is when I was reading the article, that's what I would have pointed towards wow. as well. And he says, and then I simply opened the Bible and I showed them Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Well, I had no idea what Ephesians 2, 8 9 says. So as soon as I get home, I open up my Bible, Ephesians 2, 8 9, and it was like a world had been opened. The heavens had been opened to me to use sure. Luther's language. Wow. And it was a very wonderful thing. So those verses have always been very important to me. Yeah. Pastor Kent, uh, maybe you can tell us about how the doctrine of justification, uh, how does it have an effect in your daily work as a minister, in the lives and the faith of parishioners and people that are uh, coming to Christ? Well, you know, the Scripture say, says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and it sort of does give uh, parameters for what I'm doing here as a pastor. There's a lot of things I love doing. But uh, what I'm called to do is to proclaim God's word primarily. And so that has to keep me committed to learning what the scriptures teach, being, being able to communicate it to other people, to be the type of person who's saying how important it is that people read it on their own. And it's such a wonderful situation to have real fruitful conversations with people who are reading the scriptures and discussing the matters over which I preach. That's kind of what the discipleship process is about. But when I stand in the pulpit, uh, there's this famous line that some church, I don't know, you guys can help me with this one, that some church had a a phrase that said, anyone who stood in the pulpit, there was this inscription there that said, sir, we we would Mm. learn of Jesus. Mm. That every person who stood up in that pulpit, well, what am I going to tell them about Jesus? That he's a great life coach? that Jesus um, is the person who just wants to cuddle children. and I mean, there's all kinds of Jesuses out there. The, the Jesus that I love is the one who lived before the Father and loved him with all his heart, soul, and being, and uh, credits to me all of his righteousness so that I can be a co-heir of this salvation. I love him for what he's done for me, so I can't withhold telling people what Jesus has done for them in the gospel. That's wonderful. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much, Pastor Tim Phillips. Could you tell people how to get a hold of you at your church or where your webpage is or that kind of thing? Yeah, our our website is uh, www.brightonarp.org. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N-A-R-P.org. Org. We're also on Facebook. Just search for us there, Brighton ARP, uh, on Facebook, and uh, you'll find us. 
Uh, I'm not going to give you my cell phone number. That's actually the best way to get a hold of me. But, but uh, I have your number. <laughs> You're and, important. And Pastor Kid? <laughs> uh, same way. You can reach us. You can even t- you can even type us messages on our website, richlandarp.org. Sure. And I'm uh, Chris Neiswonger, and the church's website is uh, graceviewchurch.org. And uh, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to have some more podcasts on different subject matter for you to look into. And hopefully this spurs you on to faith and good deeds, but Mm -hmm. also to read the scriptures for yourself, to know not only uh, the faith, but the history of the faith and and how we got to where we are so that we can understand what troubles there are and how we should respond to them. All things done seasonably and with grace, but also with, you know, earnestly and with our intellect and an understanding mind. Thank you so much. This has been the Merrill Man Podcast. Goodbye.